I could never kill an animal. Do you know that some people say I could never kill an animal and yet kill them almost on a daily basis? Well, today we'll be looking at that hunting argument often used by the anti-hunter, I could never kill an animal. You'll also be hearing Mercy Sharp share from my book, Devotions for Dog Lovers. Welcome to the Rock Dove Publications Quill. I think you'll enjoy today's program. Your host has spent decades studying the Bible in the original languages. He holds degrees from the University of Wisconsin, Moody Bible Institute, Asbury Theological Seminary, and Bethel Theological Seminary. With the help of some of his friends, in 1994, Dr. Rako founded a national volunteer ministry to hunters. He is an author, dog trainer, and speaker. Tom served as a full-time pastor for 36 years. Now here is your host, Dr. Tom Rako. It was a dark and stormy night. Scripture reading, Psalm 56, 3-4. It was a dark and stormy night. It really was. And I was raccoon hunting alone on the backside of our Wisconsin dairy farm. The dogs ran a raccoon out of a corn strip and took it around the hill. Queenie and Penny, two of our blue ticks, were soon treeing hard a couple hundred yards away on top of the neighbor's ridge. However, I just couldn't make my 17-year-old legs make that trek to the tree. There was nothing hindering me physically. All I had to do was cross one rusty barbed wire fence, go through an old cemetery, but wait, that was the problem. There was something inside of me that just would not let me cross that fence and step into the graveyard. It was an old, tiny place of internment, and I was familiar with the headstones that marked the handful of people buried there. In fact, during the daylight hours, I had crossed through the middle of that cemetery many times. Nevertheless, doing it on a dark and stormy night just seemed too spooky. Indeed, fear had taken over. So, instead of traveling some 200 yards to the tree, I walked about 500 yards back to the farm buildings. After arriving back at the house, I eventually talked to my girlfriend, who was visiting with my family while I hunted, into hopping in the car with me and retrieving the dogs from a road located on the other side of where they were treeing. I remember I said something like this to her, Come on, you need to experience this. But the truth of the matter was that I was afraid to go alone. How about you? What are you afraid of? If we are willing to admit it, we all either have been or presently are afraid of something. Multitudes are now terrified of terrorism, while still others fear such diverse things as heights, bats, snakes, showing emotion, spiders, crowds, being left alone, open places, death, public speaking, and even dirty restrooms. Some fears are healthy and help protect us from harm. The Bible says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Proverbs 14.27a However, many fears are unhealthy and can either prevent or cripple us from living the kind of life God desires. King David is often remembered as being a fearless fighter. 
He not only took on a bear, lion, and an experienced warrior named Goliath while still a youth, 1 Samuel 17, but David's entire life was marked with dangerous battles. Was he ever afraid when facing these life-and-death situations? Sure he was. However, the Bible tells us that when King David experienced fear, he chose to combat his fear with faith. David told the Lord, When I am afraid, I will trust in you. Psalm 56, 3. The presence and power of God was his comfort. David said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Psalm 23, 4. If we have God in our life, there is no need to be afraid. Like David, we too can choose to combat our fears, even a fear of death, with faith in the living God. Prayer Lord God, help me to choose to trust you when fear starts to overwhelm me. Help me to live a life filled with faith and not a life controlled by fear. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can learn more about the book that tells this true story and others. For example, find out how dogs in Bible times were used to fulfill specific prophecies. Discover how some dogs with disabilities did some amazing things. Hear how a dog collected money for orphans. Learn about the first canine to be launched into outer space. Gain insight as to how God is using dogs in our world today, and much more. To order your copy of Devotions for Dog Lovers, go to the Rock Dove Publications website at www.rockdove.com. Again, to get your copy of Devotions for Dog Lovers, visit rockdove.com. I've never killed an animal. I never intend to kill one. So wrote the late Rush Limbaugh in his book, The Way Things Ought to Be. There are large segments of our society who will smugly say, I could never kill one of God's beautiful creatures. But these same individuals have absolutely no problem with sitting down to eat a grilled chicken sandwich or a thick slice of roast beef. But wait a minute. Aren't those who help create the demand for grilled chicken or roast beef also, at least to a degree, responsible for the death of these animals and birds? What do you think? Must a person first lop off a chicken's head with an axe or help slaughter a steer before that individual can be considered a participant in a creature's death? And what about the vegetarian? Are non-meat eaters entirely innocent? The late, entertaining, and outspoken radio personality, Rush Limbaugh, frequently took animal rights activists to the task, and in so doing, he has stepped on some big toes. He stated in his book, The Way Things Ought to Be, quote, I'm a very controversial figure to the animal rights movement. They no doubt view me with some measure of hostility because I am constantly challenging their fundamental premise that animals are superior to human beings. They may deny holding that belief, but the truth is inescapable when you examine the policies they advocate and their invariable preference for the well-being of animals and their disregard for humans and their livelihoods, unquote. Now, Rush Limbaugh, 
had a lot of important things to say regarding the topic of animal rights. Yet Rush, who was certainly no hardcore vegetarian, seems to have had a blind spot in his logic. Like many, he too had evidently concluded and assumed that before a person can accurately be associated with the death of an animal, that person must be personally involved in pulling the trigger or swinging an axe, etc. I say this because later on in the same chapter of his book, The Way Things Ought to Be, he goes on to write, quote, I don't ever want to give the impression that I have no concern for animals. I melt around little dogs, for example. One of the things I miss most in life are the two little dogs I lost as a result of my divorce. I've never killed an animal. I never intend to kill one. But I am not going to let my concern for animals blind me to the ways they are being exploited for political purposes. I will not stand for having animals assigned rights and privileges that many human beings don't yet enjoy." Unquote. It would seem that Rush Limbaugh, along with everyone else who has ever eaten so much as a hamburger, has at least played a role in killing the critter they have chewed. You see, hunters and those who work in meatpacking plants are not the only ones who put animals to death. When a chicken sandwich is ordered over the counter, ultimately those who eat, cook, pluck, or skin, and kill the chicken all contribute something to the cause of the creature's death. Certainly, the law of supply and demand for grilled chicken sandwiches come into play. Dr. Wally Harder of the Christian Bowhunters of America addressed this aspect rather concisely and to the point by saying, quote, If you eat meat, which is perfectly biblical, somebody has to kill the animal. If you buy your meat at the grocery store, you kill the animal with your money. It's like paying a hitman to do your dirty work. The hunter has only eliminated commercial enterprises of raising and slaughtering of animals for consumption. Unquote. In our modern culture, most of us eat what others kill. This is the case whether we purchase our food at a grocery store or through a window in a fast food drive through Our ancestors also relied on others in that they didn't always kill everything they ate. Even strict vegetarians have in the past, even if it is a quite distant past, some meat-eating relative who survived a long winter or avoided slow starvation because another member of their clan or hunting party harvested a game animal, which was then divided and shared with the group. Vegetarians kill animals. Even the strict vegetarian and more radical vegan are not exempt from causing animals to expire when the very plants they take pride in eating were being planted and harvested. The machines being used serve to crush, cut, maim, and destroy a variety of wildlife. In her book, Woman the Hunter, Professor Mary Zeiss Stange eloquently points out, quote, One may argue for a vegetarian diet and abhor meat-eating on the grounds of cruelty, but in a single sunny afternoon, a farmer plowing a field wreaks more carnage in the form of outright killing and the destruction of nests and mating areas, not to mention the impacts of pesticides and herbicides on wildlife, than the average hunter does in a lifetime, unquote. Indeed, things like baby rabbits and birds, as well as field mice, gophers, and snakes regularly meet their demise, not only when crops are being planted, but also when they are being harvested. 
growing up on a dairy farm and having spent years working for a vegetable canning company, even the harvesting of such benign vegetable crops as peas and sweet corn involved the deaths of many such little creatures. The late J.B. Phillips describes this destruction through the use of humanization as a means of illustrating how people often live their lives with little thought for their ultimate future. He states in his book, For This Day, quote, Every year in the harvest fields of England, there are thousands of little tragedies. The victims are those charming little creatures, the harvest mice. Earlier in the year, the growing corn seems to them to be the ideal place in which to settle and bring up a family. Food, shelter, and building material are there in plenty, and everything seems perfectly adapted for their needs. The forest of innumerable corn stalks is their whole world, and in it they court and play, mate, and bring up their families. Their happiness seems to be complete. Until the harvest. For when the day comes for the owner of the field to reap his harvest, tragedy inevitably begins for the harvest mouse. The whole world of waving corn, which seems so snug and secure, so specially designed for his comfort and nourishment, comes crashing about his ears. Unquote. In an article titled The Truth About Vegetarianism, which was adapted from the book The Vegetarian Myth, Lear Keith reveals that she was a vegan for almost 20 years. However, she has now come to the conclusion that, quote, life isn't possible without death, and no matter what you eat, something has to die to feed you, unquote. Keith also accurately points out that in modern society, there's a general ignorance when it comes to understanding how we get the food we eat. She writes, quote, the vast majority of people in the United States don't grow food, let alone hunt and gather it. We have no way to judge how much death is embodied in a serving of salad, a bowl of fruit, or a plate of beef. We live in urban environments in the last whisper of forests thousands of miles removed from devastated rivers, prairies, wetlands, and the millions of creatures who died for our dinners. Many inhabitants of urban industrial cultures have no point of contact with grain, chickens, cows, or for that matter, with topsoil. We have no idea what nourishes plants, animals, or soil, which means we have no idea what we ourselves are eating, unquote. Yes, vegetarians kill animals. When individuals or groups push for the extreme protection of predators like wolves or predatory birds, other members of creation can be adversely affected. This is especially the case when conservation decisions are influenced by emotional appeal or political pressure rather than by credible wildlife management principles. Admittedly, just how to calculate the number of wild animals and birds killed by predators is a difficult endeavor. Without a doubt, some predators have gotten a bad rap, and as a result, have been blamed for degrees of damage they were not guilty of causing. One case in point is a coyote. The Illinois Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever website has addressed this common misconception by pointing out, quote, No single predator gets more blame than coyotes, but research over several decades have proven that coyotes 
focus their foraging on rodents and rabbits and do not take adult pheasants or nests as frequently as the other mammalian predators, red fox, striped skunk, and raccoon. In addition, the larger home range and territorial nature of coyotes can actually result in lower populations of these other more destructive predators, unquote. In addition, the number of pheasants killed by airborne predators are also sometimes exaggerated. Again, according to the Pheasants Forever website, quote, Avian predators such as hawks, crows, and owls also destroy nests and may kill adult birds, but they account for less than 10%, unquote. Now certainly, the outdated attitude that every predator is evil and therefore deserves to be shot should no longer be acceptable. The fact is, predators are predators, and in their struggle for survival are often more than willing to kill domesticated animals as well as wildlife. In some instances, it may be possible to try and calculate the number of domesticated animals killed by certain predators. One case in point is the state of Idaho, where an increase in wolf numbers has also resulted in an increase in domesticated deaths. Statistics reveal in Idaho, in 2009, wolves killed 385 cows, sheep, and livestock dogs, compared to 333 in 2008, a 15% increase. According to conservation editor Dr. Dave Samuel, in locations where the wolf has been reintroduced, there is often a lack of management. Samuel explains how in recent times, certain groups have sought to stop or seriously limit the management of these predators. He states, quote, Over the past several years, I've written about the growing number of wolves in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. The impact of wolves on elk and the lack of wolf management. When states petitioned to get wolves removed from the endangered species listing so states could manage growing packs, animal rightists predicted that wolves would be eliminated. One group went so far as to predict extermination, perhaps using such extreme language to cajole more donations from well-meaning but misinformed citizens, unquote. Although the dire predictions made by these groups were proven false, such groups will no doubt continue to fight to prevent any form of lethal management. It should be noted that in some areas, an increase in the wolf population along with a decrease in habitat have significantly impacted elk populations. In an area of Idaho once viewed as a premier place for elk hunting, the elk population has dropped from a high of 16,000 animals to 2,000 today. Idaho Fish and Game attributes this to wolves and habitat decline. According to Dr. Samuel, quote, Most biologists feel that wolf harvests need to double if elk herds are to remain stable, unquote. It needs to be realized that when predators increase in numbers, there is undeniable cause and effect upon wildlife. When predators are excessively protected and allowed to increase in an unlimited or unrestrained fashion, the death of wildlife, as well as domesticated animals, normally increases. If and when an excessive number of predators are allowed, those who are responsible need to realize that they themselves have contributed to the death of other creatures. Indeed, when we expand the numbers of a selected species, we may be responsible for radically reducing the numbers of others. 
Well, we're going to have to stop the study today. Uh, when I come back, I'll be giving some concluding remarks, and we'll continue our study addressing this issue, I could never kill an animal. Next time, we'll get into some of the biblical passages that pertain to this particular anti-hunting argument. In Hunting Arguments, Biblical Responses to a Loaded Issue, Dr. Tom Rako takes direct aim at some popular but faulty arguments wielded by hunters and animal rights activists alike. This unique work introduces readers to 10 major arguments which are frequently invoked by their users to either condemn or defend hunting. Hunting arguments include such emotional appeals and false premises as Thou shalt not kill. I eat everything I kill. I could never kill an animal. Hunting is my right as an American. Jesus was a vegetarian. And would Jesus shoot Bambi? Each chapter concludes with a set of discussion questions, making it a great resource for group studies. This book will help you to become an expert in knowing what the Bible has to say about hunting. To order your copy of Hunting Arguments, go to the Rock Dove Publications website, rockdove.com. Visit rockdove.com today. Well, as we've looked at uh, this argument, I could never kill an animal. We see that most people eat what others kill and that vegetarians kill animals. And we also see that advocates for the excessive protection of predators kill animals. For example, protecting the wolves may have a negative impact upon the lives of elk. Next time, we'll see that even pet owners kill animals, and we'll see what role God and his servants also play in creation. I uh, hope that you'll join us next time. been listening to the Rock Dove Publications podcast with your host, Dr. Tom Rako. This program has also been brought to you by the Quilted Arrow, home of intelligent, stylish, field-bred English pointers with bloodline streams from Hall of Fame champion Guardrail. Thank you so much for listening. Now this is Beth Rako inviting you to join us again next time on the Rock Dove Publications podcast. <music>